0: Self-determination has to underpin uh, the issues in Aboriginal Australia. They are deep, they are complex, and they will not be solved in one electoral cycle.
1: Hi once again, everyone. Welcome to Really Interesting Women, the podcast which explores the journeys of some unique, interesting and inspiring women. We'll look at how they've negotiated life's challenges and obstacles and how they've made the path a little clearer for those who follow. My name is Richard Graham and my guest today began her career as a teacher in Western Sydney after becoming one of the first Aboriginal students to graduate from what is now known as Charles Sturt University. At just 22 she joined several others and established the first Aboriginal Education Unit within the New South Wales State Department of Education. In this role, she assisted in creating the first ever Aboriginal education policy in New South Wales, which set the standards for Aboriginal education across Australia. Her commitment to Indigenous issues and rights in education, reconciliation and politics spans more than 30 years. Now, that would be more than enough for most high achievers, but you can add to this impressive list the fact that my guest became the first Aboriginal person, male or female, to be elected to the New South Wales State Parliament and the first Aboriginal woman to be elected to the Federal House of Representatives, where she's currently the Shadow Minister for Families and Social Services and the Shadow Minister for Indigenous Australians. She's also, most importantly, a proud member of the Wuridji Nation. Let me introduce you to the Honourable Linda Burney MP. Linda, welcome to Really Interesting Women.
0: (laughs) Thank you very much. What a... Very amazing and long introduction.
1: <laughs> well, it was very long, but it could have been a lot longer, Linda, given all that you've done. But before we get into that conversation, there's something I need to know from a personal perspective. Now, Linda, you were the state member for Canterbury for 14 years. And when you became a federal member, you represented Barton in St. George Territory. Now, mm. and I think I know you where this might be going, but for those of us who follow the great game of rugby league, like yourself, Linda. <laughs> I've spotted a bit of a problem. The Canterbury Mm. Bulldogs and the St George Illawarra Dragons have two sets of opposing yet incredibly passionate fans. How have you juggled that?
0: Well, that is a great question. I've (laughs) never been asked that before, but you're absolutely correct. So, I mean, you know, you don't don't switch your allegiances just because you switch um, or you move to a different electorate. And the way that I juggle it, I go to um, both games. I'm a doggy supporter, really. Not that we're doing very well at the moment, um, and obviously have a great deal of respect and know quite a bit about the history of a of St George. And the the great thing is that both um, rugby league sides were, you know, foundation sides. They've got a very long and proud history. And uh, believe it or not, uh, part of the Barton electorate overlaps with some of the Canterbury electorate. So that's how I kind of manage it.
1: Okay. (laughs) Lynn, in your inaugural speech to New South Wales Parliament in 2003, you opened by saying, I did not grow up knowing my Aboriginal family. And you went on to say that was the power of racism and denial in the 50s. That was so overbearing. Are you okay to talk about that racism and denial that left you not knowing your family?
0: Sure. So I um, was raised by my mother's aunt and uncle. They were my great aunt and uncle of Scottish Heritage, actually. They were uh, very brave people when I think about it in uh, retrospect, because they um, took me on as a little baby—I don't know, probably a few weeks old—and something like that. Um, and they raised me as a Aboriginal baby uh, from a, a non-Aboriginal woman who wasn't married. Now, they were pretty shocking things back there, in, back in the fifties, and, and particularly in a small country town where everyone knew everyone's business. Mm. But my great aunt and uncle raised me with very strong values, very old-fashioned values that I think have served me well um, and will serve me well for my whole life.
1: So that... uh,
0: I did know my mother, but I didn't know my father, and I was never told who he was. And after five exhaustive years of searching for him, I uh, finally met him in, uh, when I was 28, about to give birth, and um, he and I had grown up, or I had grown up, 40 minutes from where he lived, and yeah. uh, it was. And I had 10 brothers and sisters I d- didn't know existed, wow. um, and I think. That when I say the power of racism and um, exclusion, it was really uh, the fact that there was such a shame in being Aboriginal, um, perceived by, I suppose, my mother and the people that raised me, that I was never uh, told who he was mm. and uh, never was taught anything about my Aboriginality although I was raised in a very loving and supportive environment.
1: And clearly they were your biggest influence when you were growing up as well.
0: Very much. So um, it's interesting, they were both born in the late 1890s, um, which just must sound so ancient to (laughs) so many people. But they were in their 60s when they um, took me on and... um, you know, I, I watched them grow old, and at the ages 15, 14 and 15, um, they uh, passed away. So I got to know death and sorrow very early in life. Um, I always uh, was a very independent child, um, I was a good school student, I was incredibly determined. Um, and I do think that those qualities came from the fact that, you know, it, it, uh, whilst they looked after me, it was me looking after them in their old age mm. uh, when I was quite a young teenager, really. Just
1: winding forward, uh, as the first Indigenous person in state parliament and the first Indigenous woman in federal parliament, do you feel that responsibility above and beyond the usual pressures of representing your constituents?
0: You do feel an additional responsibility. There's no two ways about it. Obviously, you know, your primary responsibility is to re- represent your constituents. Uh, but being um, a First Nations person, you you certainly have... Um, the expectation, and you carry with you uh, that heritage um, because it is it is who you are, and the community, Aboriginal community sees me as uh, theirs, uh, and I do feel it uh, very much that you have a responsibility to make sure that the decisions that your party is making are decisions that are going to be beneficial for all and not have unintended consequences for First Nations people.
1: When you were elected to federal parliament in 2016, the usual rules of the lower house were relaxed to allow grudgery woman Lynette Riley to sing you into the house from the Mm. public gallery. Now, Mm. watching that video was special, but tell me what you were feeling and what that meant to you.
0: I was very appreciative um, that the Speaker, Tony Smith, uh, relaxed the rules in an extraordinary way uh, that day. And I think that for the whole Parliament, they realised that something pretty historic was happening. Um, And when Lynette stood up, she had a um, a kangaroo skin around her. And standing beside her were my dear friends, um, dear friend Anne Martin and Lynette's daughter Gara. Um, And there were a lot of people in the gallery there to support me and listen to my first speech in the federal parliament. And it was hair raising. Uh, Lynette's voice rang out across the parliament uh, from the public gallery. singing me in and uh, it was a, a, a moment that I'll never forget and I don't think the Parliament will ever forget it either.
1: I wanted to ask you something about a subject that I know you're very passionate about and by way of explanation, a, a constitutional convention bringing together over 250 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leaders met in 2017 at the foot of of Uluru in Central Australia, and the majority resolved in the Uluru Statement from the Heart to call for the establishment of a First Nations voice in the Australian Constitution and a Makarata Commission to supervise a process of agreement-making and truth-telling between governments Mm -hmm. and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Linda, how significant was that moment for you and this country?
0: Uh, For me, personally, it was incredibly significant. Uh, It was significant for all First Nations people because you had the most elegant statement produced after a very long consultative process that went for the length and the breadth of this country. And I felt very comfortable um, for those people to be making the decisions that they made on behalf of all First Nations people. It was appropriate, it was properly done Um, and this Uluru Statement or the Statement from the Heart is just the most beautifully written, beautifully crafted, simple, um, humble document and what uh, is being asked by the Uluru Statement, as you said, is three things. An enshrined voice of First Nations people in the Constitution to advise the Parliament, Uh, the establishment of Makarada Commission that would oversee truth-telling and agreement and treaty-making. Now, the federal government, the government that um, is in power at the moment, has rejected the Uluru Statement and gone on their own journey of establishing a voice to the parliament by way of legislation only. The position of the Labor Party is that we endorse the Uluru Statement in full, uh, the three components of it, and when we um, come into government, we will um, we will make that document live.
1: Am I right in saying that the Indigenous proposed constitutionally enshrined voice to parliament wouldn't have legislative powers but be more instructional and advisory? In other words, to give an Indigenous perspective to matters that affect them?
0: You are precisely correct in um, that statement. Uh, the voice to the parliament, uh, we we and the Uluru Statement ask for it to be enshrined so it cannot be gotten rid of by any government of the day. But it is to have advisory powers only. And of course, one of the um, uh, untruths that's been touted by several members of the coalition is that it would be a third chamber and somehow usurp the sovereignty of the parliament. That is absolutely not the intention of a voice to the parliament. It it is, as you say, to be a permanent voice to advise the parliament um, on matters and legislation pertaining to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people.
1: When you hear non-Indigenous telling you how to solve issues directly affecting Indigenous people. Does it feel like we never learn from history?
0: Look, I think that it's very legitimate, many of the non-Aboriginal voices over the years. Uh, But, you know, the, the, um, the reality is that some of the endemic problems of 15, 20, 30 years ago are the same today. And a classic example of that is, of course, that we now have just um, last week commemorated the 30th anniversary of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. And the horror now is that there have been close to 500 deaths in custody since the Royal Commission, um, and the number of Aboriginal people incarcerated has doubled since the Royal Commission, so uh, that's a very stark example of, w- of what you're asking.
1: Yeah, I, I, it's about... and
0: there are times when I think nothing, there have there has been nothing learnt. Uh, but what I do know is that self determination has to underpin uh, the issues in Aboriginal Australia. They are deep. They are complex and
1: they will not be solved in one electoral cycle. It seems, it, it seems startlingly obvious, doesn't it? But at, at, just on that, the, the deaths in custody, I was going to talk to you about that because I, it has a bit of a personal connection because my cousin filed a report with the current affairs program Four Corners in 1985 entitled Black Death, which actually brought attention to that appalling situation with the Aboriginal mm. deaths in police custody. And that report really precipitated the setting up of the Royal Commission uh, and into Aboriginal deaths and custody. Wow. So, yeah, so it's been something that's been on, you know, been part of me for a long time, and it's been 30 mm. years since those findings. As you've said, um, you've very recently made a major announcement and pledge regarding this, which I'll get to in a minute, but I wanted to ask you... Well, Linda, Burney, why do you think this disastrous situation has continued at such an alarming rate? I mean, is it just is it the lack of implementation of the Royal Commission's recommendations, or does it go a lot further?
0: No, it's much more complex than that. Um, but it be, you are absolutely correct. No, no government has fully implemented the. Um, recommendations of the Royal Commission which totaled over 330 uh, we still have the unacceptable situation of uh, some prison cells still having hanging hang, hang 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 points mm. um, and the uh, thing that we're looking at now in a couple of jurisdictions is making um, you know, racing out this tough on crime scenario when it comes to young people. Uh, but the reasons that uh, there are still, there is still the situation we've discussed are, are complex and multifaceted. Uh, there is, of course, the, 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 the hand of history, um, intergenerational trauma. Uh, the fact that there is such a lack of opportunity and realisation of good social justice outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, health education, overcrowded housing, um, the rate of child removal, which is just astronomical, uh, things like violence. And for young people, um, looking into the future and, and not seeing a future... And obviously, there is the huge issue of what I would describe as structural racism which permeates so much of the um of the systems that um, contribute to incarceration. Can you
1: tell us what you've recently pledged on behalf of the Australian Labor Party in response to what's been going on?
0: Yes, so last last week um he made a major announcement in Perth alongside Patrick Dodson and a number of other um, a number of other people. It was a 92.5 million dollar commitment, uh, 39 million for what we call justice reinvestment. Uh, in some other states, they they have, they have other names for it, but basically. It's, um, it's investing in 30 communities across the state uh, to reduce the incarceration, particularly of young people. Uh, 12, $12, $13 million for um, supporting families through Aboriginal Legal Services to participate in the um, uh, coronial inquest um, process. At the moment, a lot of Aboriginal families that lose a loved one in custody uh, can't participate in the in the uh, coronial inquest because they don't have the capacity or the resources to be able to do it. Uh, legal services have been robbing Peter to pay Paul for, to try and um, have some influence on the coronial inquest process. So we're going to fund legal services to be able to do that. Um, and the third part of the commitment did not have a, a dollar sign beside it because we're um, expecting the Attorneys General's Department to absorb this as part of their core business and that is real-time reporting of deaths in custody. And when I say that, I mean all deaths in custody, not just Aboriginal deaths um, at the moment. There is a totally unacceptable situation where you might find out a death if there's an article run run in a newspaper, but that's about it.
1: Um, Linda, I wanted to talk about something very significant that happened in 2000, in the year 2000. You helped organise the Walk for Reconciliation across the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Can you describe what happened on that day?
0: Well, it was an extraordinary day. It was, I think, the 26th or the 27th of May to come sign with the, um, the referendum. Uh, it was cold. It was a beautiful, clear, crisp autumn day in Sydney. There wasn't a cloud in the sky. Um, and uh, the plan was for people to assemble or to go to Milson's Point and walk across the Sydney Harbour Bridge as a sign of support for reconciliation. It was part of the Corroboree 2000, which was the culmination of the reconciliation process, the Decade of Reconciliation Mm. in Australia, uh, <laughs> we had absolutely no idea how many people would turn up. We were terrified there wouldn't be very many, and it was oh, just really? amazing that that the that, that there was just you know three hundred and fifty thousand people <laughs> across Sydney Harbour Bridge that morning. We had to negotiate with the roads and traffic authority to keep the big bridge. The bridge closed for an additional two hours yeah. uh, the trains taking people from uh, the eastern side of the city over sorry, the southern side of the city over to the um, northern side were banked up on Sydney Harbor Bridge because there was just so many people. Mm. It was just remarkable and um, probably one of the most memorable days of my life
1: did it did you get a sense of I don't know, um, optimism from seeing how much support there was?
0: There was. There was an enormous amount of support and optimism, not just that day, but in that whole decade of reconciliation, which was a a formal process here in Australia. Uh, But, of course, uh, that was uh, dampened by the fact that uh, the Prime Minister... The, the then Prime Minister John Howard didn't walk um, refused to apolog, apologize to the stolen generations. and um, I'm looking at it now this, just this well, I remember just looking up into the sky walking across the bridge and there's a plane uh, had sign, a sign writing plane. Had, had written sorry in the sky hmm. um, over the harbour and it was just magnificent. I understand it was a group of lawyers, I think, from Queensland that had got together and
1: oh, that right?
0: chipped in and uh, made that. It was, just, it was just the icing on the cake, really.
1: Well, one of the other memorable moments for me that really stood out was at the Sydney Olympics when... Uh, I think Australia's greatest band, Midnight Oil, came up on stage to sing, and we were <laughs> in the sorry shirt. So they had all black. That was with the closing sorry. ceremony. The closing actually, ceremony with the word "sorry" yeah. written on it in white, glaring at mm. all of them. It mm. was the most extraordinary thing I'd ever seen. You know, that mm. was. Inc- I mean, you wouldn't probably expect anything less from those. That particular band because they've <laughs> always been very very supportive. Obviously yeah. of, in, of indigenous. Well, they've just
0: released kids. a new album, which is a collaboration with a whole of Aboriginal artists um, to um, uh, promote the, um, the the statement from the heart.
1: Yeah. What do you think of it? Have you had? A, I've had a listen. Uh, you know. Yeah, it's, it's great. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah,
0: it's wonderful.
1: No, it just I incredible. didn't
0: make it to their concert in um, Canberra. It's just, I'm a bit of an early bed person, so yeah. it's
1: all going to be a bit late <laughs> for me. <laughs> no, I saw him a few years ago. I mean, it's just, it's it, phenomenal. Um, but but that, that statement, having the sorry clothes on, was, was incredible because it would have asked, a lot of people would have been asking the question, what are they, what are they saying? What are they sorry about? So it's, yeah, well, it's I'm sure important. the Prime
0: Minister wasn't very
1: happy. No, no, I'm sure they had, didn't know what was going on until that until time. But um, where would you like Australia to be? in 10 years' time as regards the recognition and treatment of Indigenous people in this country, Linda?
0: Um, I want the voice to the Parliament enshrined in the Constitution. I want real progress on closing the gap targets. I want the rate of Aboriginal children being removed and placed into statutory care to... Uh, be a lot less than what it is now. I want babies to be born a good, healthy weight um, and I want a national process of truth-telling complete.
1: Mm. One question that I've been asking all my guests um, and that is, Linda Burney, what makes you most proud of yourself
0: Mm, that's a great question. Uh, I guess my resilience more than anything. Mm. Yes, my resilience.
1: Do you think that's something you can teach people or is it something that can be passed on, that sort of resilience and determination?
0: Uh, what do you mean by Well, like on? to
1: a younger generation because they have to put up with so much uh, and yes, they, they have but, to yes, keep fighting. Yes, I, I do. Yeah. I do, yeah. And... I do think so, yes. I, I, you've been so generous with your time today and what must always be a torrid schedule. So <laughs> <laughs> th- th- thank you so much for being an important My part of Really Alice. Interesting Women. I really enjoyed that.
0: Thank you so much, Richard. Bye-bye.
1: Okay, bye for now. Thank you for being a big part of Really Interesting Women. We'll have relevant links in the show notes to this episode. Head to our Instagram page at RichardInstagram for photos of the guests and the all-important link to all the episodes in our bio. If you know someone who might be a great guest, direct message me from Insta. Thank you to our production team and I look forward to your company again very soon. Bye for now.